Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 26th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The new British Prime Minister is bedding in after making his first address to the House of Commons, taking questions from MPs, promising to deliver Brexit and unite the country. We came to know him as Boris alongside Paul Merton and Ian Hislop. But this bombastic, colourful, animated jester has become the statesman. Mr Johnson is the Prime Minister. Love him or loathe him, or love him and loathe him in equal amounts. As Prime Minister, Boris may entertain us, but Mr Johnson has the power to destroy us. He is one of the most powerful men in the world. His finger wavers over a button and he must decide if he will take the nuclear option. An option that could end the peace process and send Ireland back to the Troubles. He could be responsible for breaking up the United Kingdom and creating an independent Scotland and a reunited Ireland. But if the UK leaves the EU without a deal, he will impoverish us here. The UK will be hit by a deep recession and reverberations won't just be felt across the rest of Europe. The IMF says a no-deal Brexit will result in a global downturn. But how did we get here? On the 23rd of June 2016, the people of the United Kingdom voted to leave Europe. Yesterday, Mr Johnson was questioned about the campaign to leave. Meet Cambridge Analytica about in December 2016 when he was Foreign Secretary. Ah. Prime Minister, Mr. Speaker, I, I have no idea. The new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, didn't have much to say in response to that question from Deirdre Brock. He was on somewhat more firmer ground when he heard from the DUP's Nigel Dodds. Would he agree with me in terms of our shared priority? that the union comes first, that we need to deliver Brexit with a deal, but we must be prepared for no deal if necessary. And And thirdly, we need to get that devolution settlement up and running. But let us strain every sinew to strengthen the union 
get a deal to leave on the right terms. Nigel Dodds. Oh dear, we're back to that nuclear option question. Would Mr Johnson agree? We can do this by coming out as a United Kingdom whole and entire, getting rid, getting rid of that divisive anti-democratic backstop that poses that appalling choice to the British government and to the British people, uh, to the United Kingdom, of losing control of our, uh, of our trade, losing control of our, of our regulation, or else surrendering the government of the United Kingdom. No democratic government could conceivably accept that, and I'm entirely at one with the right honourable gentleman. The new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, Karen Coleman, is on the line. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Michael. Karen reports for Europarl Radio from Brussels and Strasbourg. What are they saying there, Karen? Do they love him or loathe him? Well, I'm just generally now looking at, you know, some of the reaction. Um, Very interesting, Jean-Claude Juncker yesterday apparently had told Johnson again, this is a message that has been reiterated over and over again now, that... um, the EU is not going to change the withdrawal agreement. That is the best agreement that is on offer. There may be some changes to the non-binding political declaration, but that they're going to stick with the withdrawal agreement. And this was also echoed by Michel Barnier, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, who also um, issued a statement or a letter to diplomats, apparently following Johnson's appearance in the House of Commons, reiterating the same message that the EU 27 must stick together, that the withdrawal agreement is the best agreement and that that's, that it will not be renegotiated. Um, and I think that there's generally probably a feeling that, you know, we may well now be facing a hard Brexit on October the 31st. If Johnson means what he said yesterday, then that is a real possibility, especially when you look at the composition of the people in his cabinet now. I mean, Mm. he has a bunch of Brexiteer yes-men and yes-women who will, you know, row in behind him on on pushing for a hard Brexit on on October the 31st. Well, there's two things he he said yesterday that might be of interest. One is that the rest of Europe needs to see common sense. And the other is that it is possible to leave without the backstop and to use other ways of the checking of goods and so on, that there's all sorts of technology available. Yes, I mean, this is something he's been saying for some time now, even when, you know, he wasn't prime minister, he was going on about that. And we have been told over and over again by EU officials and by others that there are no alternatives technological advancements can't provide the kind of, you know, seamless checks between the Republic and Northern Ireland that Johnson and his band of Brexiteers may suggest would work. I mean, I I, I think that has been ruled out and indeed Mm. it's been ruled out by senior EU officials. But it doesn't really seem to matter to Boris Johnson. It doesn't matter. No. It doesn't matter a dot. He can do it. He has this can-do attitude and he's optimistic and he'll do it optimistically. I think if you were to search through the transcript of the House of Commons debate yesterday for optimism, optimistic and optimistically, you'd find hundreds of counts. Yeah, I mean, he is absolutely, it seems, from what he said yesterday and from what his other cabinet people are saying and the fact that you have this very mercurial character, Dominic Cummings, in there who masterminded the Vote Leave campaign for the Brexit referendum, all now rallying together would strongly suggest that sense has departed from British politics. I think when Theresa May 
was in power, even though, you know, she was weak and she couldn't get the withdrawal agreement passed. There was a sense that she was the sort of stoic British prime minister that we've come to expect over the decades and that in the end, the British would pull the rabbit out of the hat. You know, they'd get things passed between the wheelings and dealings with Brussels. And sadly, that hasn't emerged. And now you have basically what looks like a Trump uh, administration in Downing Street sort of singing very similar similar nonsense. Re- re- the kind of rhetoric that is coming out of the White House now seems to be coming out of Downing Street. And that's why, Michael, I think it mm. really is so alarming because I one uh, opinion piece from one of the UK newspapers put it very well yesterday that what we're seeing now is almost like a hard Brexit coup dressed up as politics as usual. And I think, you know, as long as there was some sort of sensible political um, sentiments being expressed by the likes of May or others in the British cabinet, I think, you know, you always felt that maybe in the end sense will prevail. I don't think that is the case now because I, I think those sensibilities have departed from number 10. The European press has been somewhat critical of uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, the Danish newspaper Politiken, uh, running a column uh, that claimed uh, that he, like the American president, Donald Trump, has built his entire career on shameless lies and extreme self-promotion. In an editorial, the Danish paper said the British people deserve much, much better political leadership uh, than what they've got now. One of the worst is becoming prime minister, Johnson. Victory is the epitome of injustice. It's an obscene ascent to power. Uh, but perhaps the headline on the front of the German magazine, Der Spiegel, articulated European opinion, and that was simply mad in England. <laughs> I, think, I think all of those assessments are very accurate. And I mean, I think there is a sense of just incre- incredulity, unbelief that what we are seeing is almost like a mirror image of what has happened in Washington, that in, in, in the White House, and, and, and in, in seeing somebody like Boris Johnson emerge like that, it's just incredible as he is the new prime minister. And it is the fact that he has basically got rid of any sort of sane voices who might have in some way or another mm. told him to cop himself on. Now he has a cabinet of, of followers um, who are intent on leaving the EU by October the 31st. The only thing that I think is we don't know about really, Michael, is to what extent now is Westminster going to scupper his his determination to take the UK out, um, you know, no ifs, no buts, as he, he said outside number 10 mm. when he became prime minister, whether they will have the ability to stop him. I think that's an unknown right now. You know, will he actually enable himself, be able to use the powers, particularly we'll say during a time of summer recess and everything, to be able to push for a hard Brexit by October 31st? Or will he be scuppered by the majority of MPs who today don't seem to want to take the UK out of Mm. the EU in a hard Brexit way? Or has he got something else on his mind altogether? And I have a feeling that that might be exactly the case. Uh, It's hard not to like him. Uh, I mean, I think I've always liked him. I loved him when he was on Have I Got News For You? And always got a a great laugh at his expense, it has to be said. Uh, But he always entertained and never fails to entertain. And I, I think I would love him now if he wasn't about to destroy us. He's like 
the jolly executioner uh, that uh, is about to kill us but will might die laughing uh, but having said all of that uh, he's probably not so popular with uh, Mr Farage at the moment uh, because he is stealing this hard Brexit limelight uh, and he's gaining a lot of, of traction for the views that he's expressing and he's making an awful lot of domestic announcements. He's to recruit 20,000 policemen today, I think. Uh, and a lot of people are wondering if this is actually an election campaign that Boris has engaged in. Yes, I mean, there's, I think, a, a feeling now that that is exactly what he's up to. He's talking about, as you say, increasing the police forces, upgrading the hospitals in the UK, fixing what he's, I think, calling a broken social care system, cutting GP waiting times and, and other kinds of what seem very strongly like electoral promises. And he's going on a bit of a tour now. I think he's going to go up to Scotland and he's going to other places. And, and the sense is that this is some kind of pre-election tour that he is on now and you're absolutely right the, the especially the right wing part of the con- of the British Conservative Party have been very anxious about the increasing powers of Nigel Farage's uh, Brexit party which of course was very successful in the European elections and and they gained a lot of seats and and took them from from Tory constituencies and that they're nervous that actually the Brexit party if there was to be um, some kind of an election where they didn't take over the mantle of the hard Brexiteers, that Farage's party would end up with um, seats in Westminster and with maybe a lot more power. So what you're seeing absolutely is mm. internal political wrangling going on in the UK. And that would be OK if they just it was their own business. But the problem is, as we all know, and you know too well in your constituencies where you are, is that their political shenanigans have such massive ramifications for this country, for the people around the border, and of course the wider British and Irish and European economies as well. But I, I don't think these, these people don't care. This is about themselves. It's about their jobs. It's about their positions. It's about wielding power. The least thing it seems to be about is the impact of their policies on the people they're supposed to represent. Mm. Uh, looking at uh, some of uh, the European press coverage, there's uh, a newspaper called Le Sur, I think it is. It's a Belgian-French newspaper. It carried a, a cartoon of Mr. Johnson walking a tightrope, dressed as a clown, juggling balls that said Brexit, Ireland, Scotland and Iran. Uh, Donald Trump was looking on, applauding European leaders uh, like Merkel and Macron looking depressed in uh, the background. Uh, And perhaps uh, that sums up the seriousness of uh, the situation and going back to that nuclear option that he faces into. If he does decide to press that button, so to speak, uh, well, it's not just the rest of us who'll suffer. uh, And he is... I suppose, colourful, but he is not completely stupid. And he knows that he will send the United Kingdom into a deep recession. And I'm sure that's not an option that he would choose lightly. Well, but I mean, maybe it is an option that he will choose lightly. And all this kind of, you know, the buffoonery aspect of him has apparently been very well designed over the years because Boris discovered that this was a way to get people to like him. But at heart, he's an incredibly ambitious character and I mean I I was I tell you that that speech of his yesterday in the House of Commons was frightening really with the kind of an emphaticness that he was coming out with about it's either you remove the backstop completely and this nonsense about the fact that you can have other arrangements for checks across the borders um, was really scary because it suggested to me strongly 
a man who has lost his grip on, on kind of rail politics. And this is about, again, like I said, retaining his own position at any cost. And he's, he's managed to wheedle himself into Downing Street extraordinarily. I mean, this fellow, Dominic Cummings, mm. like I think, wants to get rid of the civil servants. You know, mm. he, like, these are very scary people wielding now enormous power. The hope would be that they go and they take themselves into a general election and they lose. But but now he's making all these promises and you can imagine he's going to places where there is a lot of crime. There are queues for hospitals and he's going to come out. And as we know, he's a very good speaker. And, you know, he he could again convince people that he is going to deliver on those empty promises that he's making now because they're probably unrealistic to be able to actually implement, but that they'll believe him. Um, because he's very good at pushing a message, mm. and that they would vote for him, and more of them, will, more of those Tory hard Brexiteer MPs will come back into power with a majority. So these these are scary times we're living in. They're scary scenarios, and but for me, I'm hoping sanity will prevail in in the actual House of Commons itself, and that the majority of MPs will be able to do something to stop him from pushing for a hard Brexit on October 31st. Okay, well, day one over and perhaps uh, we should uh, sigh with relief uh, that they've got on their holidays in the United Kingdom. Karen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Karen Coleman, editor with Europarl Radio, which reports uh, from the European Parliament in Brussels and Strasbourg. Now, we did talk earlier on uh, about uh, the chance that Mr Johnson's policies could result in breaking up uh, the United Kingdom Kingdom, a reunited Ireland and indeed an independent Scotland. Uh, that certainly seems to be the view of the Scottish Nationalist Party, something uh, that was articulated in the House of Commons yesterday by SNP MP Ian Blackford. Thank you Mr Speaker and of course I should welcome the Prime Minister to his place, the last Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. <laughs> Ian Blackford uh, continued. Let me warn the Prime Minister now. Try to take Scotland, try to take the United Kingdom out of the European Union on a no-deal basis. We will stop the Prime Minister from doing so. This House will stop the Prime Minister. Strong words from the SNP, but uh, the Prime Minister wasn't having any of it. If we can deliver a fantastic and a sensible and a progressive Brexit, which I believe we can, and the whole United Kingdom comes out, as I know that it will, what happens then to the arguments of the Scottish Nationalist Party? Will they seriously continue to say that Scotland must join the Euro independently? Will they seriously suggest, will they seriously, with all, will they seriously suggest that Scotland must submit to the entire panoply of EU law? And will they, Mr Speaker, will they join Schengen? And will they, is it really their commitment, Mr Speaker? Mr. Speaker, to hand back control of Scottish fisheries just after, just after, just after, just after this country, this great United Kingdom has taken back that fantastic resource. Is that really the policy of the Scottish Nationalist Party? May I respectfully suggest to the Right Honourable Gentleman, that is not the basis on which to seek election in Scotland. Uh, we, we, will, we will win on a manifesto for the whole United Kingdom. Boris Johnson, we'll hear more from him later in the programme. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Well, labels with health warnings on alcohol have uh, the desired effect. Uh, This is what uh, the Department of Health is trying to establish and it advertised this week uh, for parties uh, to submit expert research uh, to say yay or nay. Alcohol Ireland says yes, it would. Alcohol Action Ireland says yes, it it would have an impact and improve public health. Eunan McKinney, Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland is on the line. Good morning to you, Eunan, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, What would we expect to see on these labels? Well, essentially what, what the, the law, which was passed last year, outlines is that in the future, at some point in the future, and it hasn't been commenced as yet, but we'll talk about that in a second, is that there will be three warnings, three health warnings. One, which outlines that alcohol is generally bad for your health. Two, that alcohol during pregnancy is not a good idea. And three, that there's a direct link between alcohol and fatal cancers. They're the three health warnings. And right. Then the, uh, and the would that be uh, warnings given to you by way of text? Would it be a written yeah. warning or would there be photographs like we see on packets of cigarettes? Well, that's to be determined, but it is more likely to be text at this point. There's generous practice throughout the world where there are warnings on uh, alcohol products tends to be in, in, in lettering form. And now, some places, the, there is a, your listeners will be familiar with the pictogram of the pregnant woman that you'll see on some bottles. Um, so they may, they may decide to do that as well. But this is part of the process that's begun here is that essentially what the Department of Health are doing today or, or yesterday is starting the process to gather all the available research, all the expert research, peer-reviewed research from across the world, and then from that, then draft regulations, which then would be subsequently be submitted to the European Commission for approval. Okay, maybe expand on that. Tell us what evidence there is that these labels work. I, I haven't seen those labels myself of a pregnant woman on bottles of alcohol here, is it? Yeah, what yeah. you'll see okay. is typically in France, you'll see that a bottle of wine, any bottle of wine that mm-hmm. emanates out of, the, out, of the, out of France tends mm-hmm. to have a very small uh, pictogram of a, a pregnant woman, a, a graphic of a pregnant mm-hmm. woman with a and line. I, assumably the message is that you shouldn't drink at all when you're pregnant because it exactly. can have a, a detrimental effect on exactly. the child. Uh, but people know yeah. that, don't they? I mean, do, they, do do these labels have an effect on people or is it just that they're reminded of the damage that they're doing? Well, I suppose what it is, it's a much wider discussion in so much as that in the context of any food labelling and alcohol at the moment is exempt from food labelling. Like it, it, it is mentioned in, in the directive from the EU, but all, all our food products today, we tend to purchase all our pro- food products outline mm. the calorie content, it outlines the ingredient content, it outlines where there may be um, allergies involved. All of these matters are now standard practice on food products. And why do we do that? We do that because people need to be informed, especially in the context of wider debates around obesity, wider debates mm. around uh, allergy issues. All of these, you know, essentially mm. these are messages of public health and they're there to determine and to assist people, assist the consumer to make a better informed choice of the food and drink that they eat. Mm. But do you understand my point? Uh, I presume everybody knows that you really, ideally speaking at least, will never drink when uh, you're expecting a, a child. Uh, and but that's uh, not the case, as we know. I mean, but the, no, We know that people do, but we, yeah. I, I assume that those people know that they shouldn't. Well, not necessarily, no. Okay, okay. There's, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a high degree of... Now, there's very little research in relation to 
what people's awareness of products are in relation to the harm that they're doing. Now, mm. there is some. There was one piece of research that was done, certainly here, where we were able to demonstrate that there was less than fifty percent of the people who actually had an awareness of some of the issues around the impact on their health. Mm. And in that context, it's, it's again, it has to be seen in a wider debate that is says that do we want to inform consumers about what it is they're consuming and what is the impact on their health. Mm. And, you know, as I say, in, 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 you, yeah. we can't expect behaviour to change yeah. unless we inform people what it is well, it's a very good example because I think most people would agree that it would be very worthwhile if it resulted in pregnant women not drinking, if that was the case all of the time. And do you believe that it would change the behaviour of some women when they become pregnant? Well, I think it would. Again, in the context that we cannot expect people to change behaviour unless they're actually informed. Mm. So... That's the first premise, you know. It's a kind of a, a rule of thumb. That yeah, yeah. That, that, that's where my doubt lies because I think most people would know that uh, you run a, a risk of damage to the child if you drink when you're pregnant. Yeah, well, I think that is that is, that is the logical assumption that we make, but that's mm. not necessarily the case in practice. Okay. And in the context mm. of it's been available on all products, is not the case. So mm. therefore, we cannot expect people currently to understand that drinking alcohol during pregnancy is necessarily a bad thing. Mm. And similarly, in the context of, you know, the other issues are, I mean, there are broader issues involved in the context of just the general health of the public in relation, we've had this discussion before, just Mm. the general relationship of alcohol, of, you know, alcohol-related harms and health. Cancers, heart problems, cirrhosis of the liver. Exactly, exactly. So people, generally speaking, I mean, they're, there's been some research done in places like Australia and Canada where the you know the, the link between alcohol and cancer <clears throat> is very very poorly recognised and very poorly understood. And then again, in that context, what you want to try and do is you want to move a general public into a, a space whereby their awareness levels of the harm that's that potentially been caused mm. is is heightened. And you know the analogy here has to be with tobacco. Again, you know we, we do this all the time, yeah. but you know, 30 years ago, we didn't have anything on packaging on in relation to tobacco. We used to advertise uh, tobacco. We used to associate tobacco with sport and, and mm. sponsorship and all of these things. We did all these things as a norm. And uh, as a result of that, nearly 50% of the population smoked. So over a period of time, over a generation, we have moved and we have shifted to a point where now it is absolutely crystally understood that people uh, shouldn't smoke and therefore you know we've managed managed to bring now we have some way to go in this battle yet but we've brought it down to around 17 or 18 percent of the population now. okay as you say this is just part of uh, the alcohol uh, reform bill uh, and uh, the public health yeah. bill uh, and uh, you're still waiting uh, for that to be commenced Yes, so what the Minister has done, I mean, we were a little bit regretful of the fact that this has taken so long to get underway. I mean, the bill was passed last October, but look, we'll be generous on the day and say, look, at least it is progress. We're now starting this process. I understand the consultation will close in September, and hopefully we'll move fairly quickly thereafter to the publication of the draft regulations. And presumably, like, there's a period of allowed, a transitional period of three years allowed for industry to actually, you know, use down the existing labelling and to develop new labelling. So we're looking at a time frame here of around, you know, sometime around 2025 when this might actually start to be evident on, on the labels.
Okay, we leave there. Eunan, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Eunan McKinney, Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. Now, earlier this week, uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Vradker, suggested uh, that Boris Johnson wasn't in this world if he thought that the withdrawal agreement could be renegotiated. This was put to the new Prime Minister in the House of Commons yesterday by Labour's Hilary Benn. But yesterday the Taoiseach said that any suggestion that a whole new negotiation could be undertaken in weeks or months is not in the real world. If, if Leo Varadkar is right... And as a consequence, the House of Commons votes in the autumn against leaving the European Union on the 31st of October without an agreement. What will the Prime Minister's policy be then? Resign. Resign? I don't think so. It's certainly not what Boris Johnson had to say. I think that uh, what the Right Honourable Gentleman has said is redolent of the kind of defeatism and negativity that we've had why, why begin by assuming that our, our EU friends will not wish to compromise? I think they have every reason to uh, want to compromise, and that is what we will, we will seek. Uh. Boris Johnson telling the Taoiseach that he will be willing to compromise. Time will tell. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Inspector of Mental Health Services, uh, Dr Susan Finnerty, is warning uh, that roughly 1,200 people with often severe and complex mental health difficulties are at risk of abuse and substandard living. Let's talk about this with Sherry McDade, who's uh, the Director of Mental Health Reform. Good morning to you, Sherry, and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. This is uh, the third such report uh, from the Director of Mental Health Services. Uh, They're not obliged to inspect uh, these centres, but they do, and it's the third time last year uh, they inspected 54 centres out of a a total of 118 centres. And the type of residencies that we're talking about are are places that people would have moved into predominantly in the first instance in the 1980s when uh, they decided to close down a lot of the asylums and bigger institutions. Yes, that's true, though if you look at the descriptions of who is in the residences now, there there is definitely a mixture between people who um, are still there having lived for decades in the in these residences um, and those who've been uh, housed in these residences more recently, who, who've come into them within months or recent years, who, who've lived there. For, for shorter periods of time. So the, there are a, there's a regular flow. There's an ongoing flow of individuals who need this kind of very high support for a period of time. Uh, the type of conditions that they're living in are, are very questionable and are not reaching a standard that most people would think are, are fundamental standards. That's correct. And I, I think that it's very strong that the inspector of mental health services has said that there are human rights violations here. These are people who, just like you and me, deserve to live in accommodation where they can have privacy, where they can have a private room, where they can uh, live in the community, where they can choose who they want mm-hmm. to live with. Um, and they're not getting any of those opportunities. And they're also not... For, for, for the most part, 91% of the people who live in these homes are living in shared rooms. Uh, well, actually, just to correct you there, but it's, it's about two out of every five are, are living in shared rooms. 
But of those, um, so of those who are living in shared rooms, mm. they're not getting even basic privacy, like having a, a curtain between uh, them mm-hmm. and, and the other person they're sharing the room with. I, I beg your pardon. So when they are sharing a room with somebody, the room is open plan, if you like. There's nothing to divide to them from the other person that they're sharing with. Yes, that's correct. And, of course, they probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to choose mm. who they're sharing that room with either. And it's 43% uh, of residences that don't provide shared rooms. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. That's or right. single rooms, yeah. Um, mm. And she's all, uh, the inspectors also expressed concern just about the number of these residences that have more than 10 people in them. Um, no, in fact, a more recent uh, policy from the HSE is that uh, such residences shouldn't have more than four people in them. Mm. This policy by the HSE around what's called congregated settings uh, actually said that any more than four people in a residence, and it be, it begins to become institutional. And you can imagine that when you're trying to support more than four adults, in a single residence, you start to have to do things much more regularized, like you have to all eat at the same time, perhaps, or you have to all, you know, go to sleep at the same time. That kind of thing starts to come into play. Um, and so that's that's why there is a policy that there shouldn't be any more than four people living together. Mm. And it should people be people that you want to live with, you've chosen to live with, in an ordinary home. home in an ordinary community setting. And a lot of these residences do not fulfill that picture. They're not providing that kind of home environment for people. Mm, uh, because that is what you'd expect in an institution, that mealtimes uh, would be set uh, and uh, that you would do what the rest of the community are doing as such. That's right. That's right. So that would be an old-fashioned way of um, housing people with a severe mental health difficulty. And it's not in keeping with human rights law that Ireland is, is signed up to. I mean, now, I mean, the, the kinds of problems that the uh, inspectors alluded to mm. in terms of where this is coming from, part of it is that they're not regulated. And it is really concerning, deeply concerning, when you think about the stories of abuse that we've had in other types of health and social care settings Mm. in Ireland, that we have a situation where we have over a hundred health settings that are not regulated in any way. They're not regulated in terms of the mental health care that's being provided. Um, So that is in itself very concerning. And if the needs needs of the residents are are, are being met, uh, and they are residents, uh, these people are are living in uh, these uh, places, uh, it's their home. Uh, And what type of uh, condition are the buildings in? Well, I think if you look at the inspection reports, it's uneven. So some of them are okay, but in some of them, she's saying that the physical conditions are such as to not even show basic respect for people's dignity. Mm. Um, I was uh, looking at at some of the ones for the um, Dundalk area. You know, and one of them is saying that um, it needs the significant re- the toilet needs significant renovation, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is um, is a, 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 a so-called community residence, but it's mm-hmm. actually on the grounds of a hospital, and it has 16 beds, so it's not 
a home environment at all. And it's something quite different, you know. But it, but it is somebody's home, and that's where they live, uh, and yes. they are residents there. But it, it's assisted yes. living, isn't it, Shari, in that uh, these are, are vulnerable people uh, who have needs and they need assistance. Is the assistance there for them? Well, that's the other part of it. So while there are staff there that are providing people with kind of practical assistance, um, they're seems to be a significant gap in terms of the therapy that they're getting, the actual therapeutic support to help them to recover and to help them to live independently in the community. And this is a lack of resources. This is a lack of the, having the staff, the, the kind of range of mental health professionals uh, that are put together in a team and that are designated to support these individuals to live the best possible quality of life that they can live. Um, and of course, that's that's tragic because what do you have? You have individuals who are in high support accommodation who potentially could be moving to lower levels of mm. support if they had the right intensive supports around them uh, to live in the community and to, to properly recover. So, um, yeah, that's it's very okay. frustrating. Well, I suppose to some degree this uh, spells out uh, a clearer message uh, and uh, it's uh, there for people uh, to listen to. Uh, is that message being heard, do you think? Well, I think it tells us two things. One is it tells us that we need the legislation to reform our mental health law so that uh, these settings are regulated. And that should be done as a matter of priority. Uh, we, We want to see that move along so that we're not in this space in another year or two years' time where we're saying there's no regulations around these services. Um, And then the other thing is we need adequate resources, and that's that's a question of priority within the upcoming budget to say, uh, will there there be adequate resources to build up these rehabilitation teams? And then finally, we need action by the HSE, and they have known about this issue for over 10 years, um, they could be planning and have very specific targets for improving the services for these individuals. And I think that that should also be acted on promptly. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, Sherry McDade, thank you for joining us this morning. Sherry McDade is the Director of Mental Health Reform. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and everybody listening in. Liam contacted us to say, Michael, in this day and age, when so many politicians are flaky and regularly go back on on their word, is Boris Johnson not to be admired for following what he believes in and what he has campaigned for. At least he's true to his word, Michael, if nothing else. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, I'm not sure that many would agree with that. I think uh, he has contradicted himself on a number of occasions. Yeah. OK. Seamus says that Boris Johnson is not going to budge and doesn't seem bothered at all about the genuine concerns for a return to the Troubles if the UK crashes as out without a no deal, he feels it really is a worrying time and doesn't share your optimism, Michael, that something will be salvaged. Oh, I know what Boris would say about that. Why Why be negative? Why be negative? Why not be optimistic you're a, you're make the it happen? You're full yeah. on this one, Michael, aren't you? Anne was listening to your interview with Karen Coleman at the top of the show and agrees with her that all we can do is hope hope that common sense will prevail in the House of Commons. 
Why would the UK want to leave without a deal? That's what baffles Anne Michael. Mm. She just can't get her head around that. Well, I don't think there's anybody in the UK who says they want to leave without a deal. Everybody is saying, no, we want a deal. We want a deal. We want the deal on our terms, though. Yes. Uh, The DUP has a lot to answer for. It is them that's putting pressure on the British government in relation to the backstop. What about the majority of the people in the North who voted to remain in the EU? They are being ignored. Mm, Okay. well, we heard Nigel Dodds earlier on. Let's go back uh, to that debate in the House of Commons yesterday. Uh, We heard on the programme yesterday uh, the two leaders uh, go at each other, Theresa May uh, and Boris Johnson, until she was replaced, obviously, yesterday. Or Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, I beg your pardon, uh, until Mrs May was replaced yesterday by Boris Johnson, who is... uh, the new leader of the Conservative Party and indeed uh, the new Prime Minister. Jeremy Corbyn is uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party. A lot of people aren't too happy about Boris Johnson's appointment. Jeremy Corbyn isn't too happy about it or indeed the new cabinet, the far right, he says. We have a hard right cabinet staking everything on tax cuts for the few and a reckless race to the bottom Brexit. He says... He has pluck, nerve and ambition. Our country does not need arm-waving bluster, but competence, seriousness and after a decade... And after a decade of divisive policies for the few to focus for once on the interests of the many. I think Mr Johnson would contend uh, that he is competent and serious and indeed committed to the Good Friday Agreement. The withdrawal agreement negotiated by my predecessor has been three times rejected by this House. Its terms are unacceptable to this Parliament and to this country. No country that values its independence and indeed its self-respect could agree to a treaty which signed away our economic... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Independence and self-government as this backstop does. A, A time limit is not enough. If an agreement is to be reached, it must be clearly understood that the way to the deal goes by way of the abolition of the backstop. For our part, we are ready to negotiate in good faith an alternative with provisions to ensure that the Irish border issues are dealt with where they should always have been in the negotiations on the future agreement between the UK and the EU. I do not accept the argument that says these issues can only be solved by all or part of the UK remaining in the customs union or in the single market. The evidence is that other arrangements are perfectly possible and are also perfectly compatible, perfectly compatible with the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement, to which we are, of course, steadfastly 
committed. There's Boris, that buffoon, going on uh, again about other ways of uh, policing uh, the border and he's saying that there will not be a backstop. If there has to be a backstop, there'll be no deal. Jeremy Corbyn was arguing, no deal, no steal. Does he accept that he would be directly flouting the expressed will of this parliament? Industry, business and unions have been absolutely clear about the threat that it poses. No deal means no steal. No car industry. Food prices dramatically rising and huge job losses. Make UK... Say, Make UK, representing much of manufacturing industry, says no deal would be the height of economic lunacy. Companies from Toyota to Asda have been clear about the dangers of no deal. Is the Prime Minister still guided by his F dot 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 business policy? Mr Speaker, those recklessly advocating no deal won't be the ones who lose out. The wealthy elite that funds him and his party will not lose their jobs, see their living standards cut or face higher food bills. Mr Speaker, if the Prime Minister has confidence in his plan once he's decided what it is, he should go back to the people with that plan. Labour will oppose any deal that fails to protect jobs. oppose any deal that fails to protect jobs, workers' rights or environmental protections. And if he has the confidence to put that decision back to the people, we would, in those circumstances, campaign to remain. The Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, talking about Mr Johnson's F dot 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 business policy, which would result in no deal. The Prime Minister says he's preparing for no deal. And it is vital now as we uh, prepare for a, a better deal, a new deal, that we get ready, of course, for, for no deal. Not that I think that that will uh, be the outcome, not that I desire that outcome, but it is vital that we prepare uh, business, industry, uh, every community in this country that needs farming, that needs the relevant advice. And as my right honourable friend has wisely suggested, there will be a very active and public campaign to do so. Was that always Boris's position? Jeremy Corbyn says he's flip-flopping. I'm deeply alarmed to see no plan for Brexit. He was in the Cabinet that accepted the backstop and, of course, voted for it on the 30th of March this year. It would be welcome if he could set out what he finds so objectionable, having voted for it less than four months ago. Can he explain this flip-flopping? The House... The House will have both a sense of déjà vu and of trepidation at a Prime Minister setting out rigid red lines and an artificial timetable. There is something eerily familiar about a Prime Minister marching off to Europe with demands to scrap the backstop. Flip, flop, flip, flop, flip, flop. But who's the flippiest flop of all? I have to say, the most extraordinary thing has just happened today. Did anybody notice what happened today? Did anybody notice the terrible metamorphosis that took place? Like the final scene of Invasion of the Body Snatchers? 
At last, at last, this long-standing Eurosceptic, the right honourable gentleman, has been captured. He has been jugulated. He has been reprogrammed by his honourable friends. And he has been turned now into a Remainer. He wants, he is, he has turned Labour into the party in all of all the flip-flops he has performed in his turgiversating career. That is the one for which I think he will pay the highest price. Because he is this party now, this party, this government that is clearly on the side of democracy. Well, make up your own mind. That's <laughs> Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn at it yesterday in the House of Commons. I won't be able to look at my flip-flops in the same way again, Michael. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Without thinking mm, of that. Yeah. <laughs> John says it's at least comforting to him to see that the EU is standing firmly behind the back- backstop and is not going to give in to Johnson. The UK cannot be allowed to dictate. The agreement was reached and should be honoured. Uh, however, Margaret says in a text, I find it hard to trust the EU when it comes to Brexit. We are one small country and the EU will do what suits the majority. With Boris in charge now, we'll see how long the unity will last. Mm. So Margaret's worried about that aspect mm. of it. Mm. Come back, Theresa, all is forgiven, says Deirdre. Tom says there needs to be free movement of people and goods between the north and south of this country and whatever happens, a hard border has to be avoided. David phoned in to tell us that he's concerned for you, Michael. Deeply concerned. (laughs) I I appreciate that, I have to say. I'm kind of concerned for myself. (laughs) He thinks that you're becoming a bit obsessed with Boris Mm. Johnson and he's only been elected a day. He says it was Trump. And yeah. now you've moved to Boris. What yeah. is it about you and these two men, David wants to know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. well, I think we'll take that as a, a statement rather than a question, yes. <laughs> OK. Mm. Well, look, we just had one observation mm. um, from Jim, one other observation that I'll get to today. And um, it's nothing to do with Boris Johnson, mm. nothing to do with anything we're talking about, Michael. Okay, yeah. It's to do with the Irish weather. Ah. Because Jim just wanted to make the point, what is it about about the Irish and our obsession with the weather. He says that for the past couple of months when the weather wasn't great, everyone was complaining that we weren't getting a summer and, Mm. oh, we wouldn't get a summer and the winter's going to be here and blah, 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 blah. Now we get a bit of warm weather. And what are people doing? Very hot, They're moaning like there's no tomorrow. The heat would kill you, wouldn't it? That's what they're saying. And, oh, we're not not equipped here Mm. in Ireland to cope with the warm weather. He'd say, well, people just enjoy the moment. Absolutely. You're dead right Jim I'm looking forward to enjoying it today (laughs) words of wisdom thank you Jim thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us if you'd like to add to what's been said as always we'd love to hear from you Marie and Maggie are taking calls today our telephone number is 1850-715-958 Michael Reed on LMFM now the European Committee of Social Rights has found Ireland to be in breach in practice and in legislation of travellers housing accommodation and eviction rights this is following following a complaint from uh, the Irish Traveller Collective and the European Committee on Social Rights found the state to be in violation of Article 16 of the European Social Charter on five different grounds. We'll hear about uh, the grounds and what this means now because Bernard Joyce, Director of the Irish Traveller Movement, joins us. Uh, Very good morning to you, Bernard, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Obviously, as a a barrister, you've been uh, a very significant player in uh, the story. Uh, Explain the background to us, if you would. 
Um, just to say, my name is it is Bernard Joyce, uh, and again, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I'm not a barrister, um, and um, but I am the CEO of the Irish Travel Movement. My apologies. Um, yeah. So, um, and I have been on your show before. Yes. Um, so again, thank you. Um, so just just in terms of the uh, the findings of that particular report in terms of Europe, um, quite recently, what now has materialised is that um, the minister, our minister in in Mead, um, Damien English, yeah. had commissioned a um, independent. Um, expert report um, to look at um, you know the legislation of 1998 the Housing Travel Accommodation Act mm-hmm. um, so what I realise that report has now come to a close and there are key recommendations in terms of um, you know in terms of how to streamline and um, deliver um, travel accommodation in a more efficient effective way um, and um, and trying to um, address some of those blockages. So, if I can just uh, maybe just add to your listeners, and if they might be fully aware, David, is that um, like we, we are in the midst of a national housing crisis, and, you know, and the figures are are quite damning. Mm. But within that, um, unfortunately, travellers are um, you know are even further ahead in terms of overrepresentation and things like gender around the homeless crisis. Um, so. Um, in the census of 2006, it showed that there was 517 travellers counted as homeless, um, that you have 7.5% of total numbers of homeless uh, in the count of travellers. And you also have, um, you know, if you break that down, mm. more than half of those are who are presented are women. So it really is not a situation or accepted situation. And there's money there to provide accommodation, money for the local authorities to draw down from, but they haven't been using that money. Just under two million has been spent this year out of an allocation of thirteen million. Well, I could even go a little bit further yeah. and say to you that probably from since since from two thousand eight to two thousand eighteen. There's a total budget of 168,000 um, for the provision and refurbishment of travel accommodation. Um, 66% of that has been allocated or drawn down by local authorities. Um, so there's a significant underspend from year to year. Yeah. And at the same time, you're looking at poor, substandard, inhumane conditions that are probably, you know, the vast majority of the avoid community probably are not fully aware of. Um, and these precisely have been in some ways neglected, that they haven't been maintained um, and they haven't been brought up to the standard that it should be. So from a European perspective, I think they were highlighting that and they were also highlighting the, you know, the drawdown of the budget. But um, since that, you, you might recall as well that the um, Equality, the Human Rights Equality Commission, mm. which is Ireland's own monitor and watchdog on human rights, um, have also... Um, um, made an announcement that they will also be investigating the drawdown of local authorities in terms of the budget. So this particular report comes at a really good time because um, it's not about, you know, pointing fingers. Mm. It's about looking at, um, you know, the legislation and what solutions are required to make that legislation more effective, more meaningful in terms of oversight, in terms of delivery, in terms of monitoring, in terms of resources, 
And, um, and maybe it is about pointing fingers or bringing about a, an end to pointing fingers because one of the problems is that people point fingers at travellers and uh, discriminately say we don't want to live beside them because of this, that or the other. And this is one of uh, the recommendations that uh, this expert review is making, uh, that the settled community should not be able to object to planning on the basis uh, that uh, travellers are, are going to live in, in these buildings. Okay, well, maybe I'll just go. I know that that point has been brought up uh, time and time again, and 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 and, and it has been raised um, in terms of local councillors. But I'll just read out the the part of the part eight for your listeners. <coughs> so, the, um, so one of the core asks that we've asked and, and others was around the part eight, um, the public consultation. So, what this report now states is that um, do um, that there. Um, the planning um, in terms of the Part 8 would be a, mor- a moratorium on that for five years um, and that would directly go straight in to um, um, fast-track the uh, travel-specific accommodation. That's done in line, again, so that's um, just for your listeners as well, that in 2016, the planning in relation to social housing um, that um, there's already precedent for developments over 100 units um, after, um, going forward. And that, and we were asking, um, Joe, that would be, we were asking for the same. So these proposals would proceed to and toward Blanola um, in terms of the te- full te- te- determination uh, without the formal decision-making of local planning authorities. And so it's a temporary, we're saying it's a temporary measure to try and bring it up to a level playing field so that the that sort of that the accommodation that's currently in the pipeline for so maybe five to ten years, in some cases it could mm. even it could even be longer, that that accommodation should not should start coming on, and we and that has been a block in um you know better outcomes in terms of improvement of accommodation right across Ireland, um, and unfortunately that that has been not 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 entirely the whole issue, but it has been. Um, a blockages because, and just to say to you, not mm. everybody would object to travel specific accommodation because they would have there would be travellers in every community, mm. um, and in some cases they'd be welcome, but in other cases, um, you know there um, there is blockages, and we want we want to see those blockages addressed. But does that mean that? there wouldn't be uh, the ability to object to a planning application if uh, the objective uh, was uh, to house travellers uh, in the units when they were finally built? Well, in some, that's, uh, what we're, we're looking at is that, for example, um, there's been a situation where probably Galway, that um, before it even gets to plan, things like site site location hmm. um, and the site location has become a con- contentious issue for no other reason than just for you know travellers being designated you know um, hmm. being that site that location being identified um, um, and, uh, and as such um, in Galway um, there was no the provision of travel specific accommodation didn't come on stream hmm. there was actually a social housing body that was going to plan design and work with, with the community and unfortunately um, you had officials who are very supportive and a manager, or to, uh, in these cases, they're not complicated managers anymore. To call, you know, um, um, executive officers, mm. but um, but that didn't happen, um, and we see that that's a contentious issue because that's then blocking um, traveller Pacific accommodation for another reason. Mm. 
than people being members of the traffic community. And I don't, we, we don't feel that's an acceptable reason that traveller yeah, lives but, but, are being but, played at a local level. In terms but of you, can't, you can't make a legitimate uh, objection to planning now because uh, the people who are going to live in the houses are travellers. Uh, I mean, it, it won't wash. Uh, people might object for that reason, but they'll let on at something else. Uh, And on other occasions, people will object to planning applications uh, for many different reasons. It's going to overshadow their houses. It's going to take up the green space. Uh, Their roads aren't big enough. There aren't enough enough spaces in the schools. There aren't enough doctors for the area. Uh, But uh, are are you saying that... that, No, that's all true. And I think what what, what we're saying is, in the end, the Tribal Pacific Accommodation does eventually come on stream. Mm. But um, what really should take three years ends up possibly being, you know, um, 10 years. Um, and at the, the same time, you would have families, um, you know, in really poor uh, provision of accommodation mm. Mm-hmm. that shouldn't really be in those temporary sites. Um, and that's, that's, that's problematic. To say as well, this, this is not new. It's... Um, it's already in situ in terms of fast-tracking um, social housing since 2016. Um, so but that's should, already in But should place. that not be across the board rather than for... Well, we're just asking for the same thing. We're just, mm. you know, there's no, it's already there. We're asking you know, that, be, that Travis just be, in, be included within that. Um, and I think a lot of people you know, probably weren't aware of that. And wasn't, you know, mm. So if you think about the, the list in terms of social housing, there's you know, over 100,000 people waiting for mm. social housing. Um, so it's a similar pattern. So we're asking that travels be included within that, the, the 2016, so that it can fast-track delivery of travel accommodation. But that's only one element. Mm. That's only one element. And our, uh, our, 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 our councillors in County Meath uh, didn't face that problem to some degree because they didn't draw down any of the money a- available. There were one of 10 county councils that didn't draw down on the funds available for travel yeah, accommodation. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 what do you say to politicians like that? I say, you know, shame on them, you know, because um, that it, it's not just, you know, that you do have people living in, I would say, just inhumane, unacceptable living conditions. And, you know, this money is there to be used to improve better living conditions. And just, you know, and if you have a good home and good good conditions, mm. you're going to do better in, in, in terms of, you know, right across all aspects of life and, 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 and education, employment. Mm-hmm. Um, better relationships with the wider community, more integration. Um, and I know there's always this question about onus and responsibility in the mm. traffic community, but there is an onus and responsibility in all of us, um, you know, to reach out and that, you know, people have basic living standard conditions. It shouldn't be up in negotiation. It should be something that's the basic right. Mm. Um, and that's what the, um, you know, um, the European human rights bodies have stated. And also in terms of the, our own um, you know, uh, human rights and commission um, yeah. have, have come there. So okay. I, I think there's a, there's a there's a there's a willingness, there's a there's a knowness, and, and I have to commend um, our minister, uh, Mr. Damien English, um, for taking the the initiative uh, and to review. And this was this again. You know, we we had no involvement. It was very independent mm. in, in in terms of the establishment of that. Uh, and the report itself, and they, they actually did in co- consult with key stakeholders, which included local authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, 
right across the spectrum. Indeed, um, Minister English working uh, alongside some of uh, those councillors in County Meath uh, this morning uh, as uh, uh, Meath TD himself. Uh, 585 yeah. families living on uh, the side of the road, which is a 66% increase in five years and in itself tells its own story. Uh, we've run out of time at, at this stage, uh, Bernard. Uh, and Again, thank you very much for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I was just going to say, Bernard, I hope you'll forgive me for confusing yeah. it with your, with your namesake, David Joyce. Uh, but, uh, well, it, it, it does happen. It does happen. And, well, I, and, and, uh, and, and myself, and I know David quite well. Yeah. Um, and um, David is also, he's from Navan. I'm from Kells, yeah. um, they were the same neck of the woods. And, uh, uh, OK, well, look, uh, apologies again, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. OK, thank, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Bernard Joyce, Director of uh, the Irish Travellers Movement. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Quite a few people calling us uh, this morning with uh, the what if scenario. What if Boris Johnson holds firm and says uh, that he's leaving the United, the, leaving Europe without a, a deal? Will the rest of Europe sell us out and decide to do a deal without a backstop? This is a, a question that was asked of Mr. Johnson in the House of Commons yesterday by James Dudridge. Angela Merkel has indicated that there might be some flexibility on the backstop, does he believe, as I, that the French and Germans are likely to put the EU under more pressure to be flexible? It would seem Mr Johnson does believe that to be the case. Common sense dictates that now is the moment for seriousness and for compromise, and that, I think, is what we're going to find. All right, we'll hear more from Mr Johnson before we finish up today, but now to a curious story about a man who jumped out of a window in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital and may never walk again since doing this last March. Uh, Paul Bell is uh, the Mayor of uh, Drogheda and uh, SIP2 Health Division Organiser, obviously representing staff in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital and on the line with us uh, this morning. This is a a curious story. Why did this man jump out of the window? Well, Michael, it is a curious story, actually, and I had a reader a number of times having read uh, Nicola Donnelly's uh, exclusive report in The Star, uh, and I actually thought I was reading something from a James Bond movie. Uh, Ian Fleming would be proud of this script. Uh, actually, it seems that, uh, which wouldn't be the first time where you would have had an incident involving prisoners in, in various hospitals throughout the state uh, where an escape bid is made. Uh, but this is a very unusual story where an individual fakes uh, an illness, uh, uh, actually a, a diabetic coma, is brought to the hospital on the guard of the Irish Prison Service and the guard of Shikona, mm. uh, and manages then to uh, escape uh, through a bathroom window and also escape his handcuffs, and then to re-enter the hospital uh, under an assumed name, with a very, very strong story of how this injury took place. So, uh, uh, I do, uh, I do believe that it's, it's something that's of uh, very, very significant interest to not only the health service but also of our members uh, in how these matters are conducted when prisoners are brought into hospital. Right. Uh, so he was letting on that he was sick, uh, and uh, then escaped. Uh, after being brought to hospital by jumping out of the window, did himself some serious injury and then led on he was somebody who he wasn't, pretended to be somebody else and went into the emergency department. Do we know how uh, they discovered he was an escaped prisoner? Well, I think actually one of the staff members in the, in, in the uh, facility uh, became suspicious uh, that uh, all was not well. 
uh, had been reported in, in the hospital at this stage, I think, that uh, an individual had absconded. Uh, and uh, the, the people in, in the A&E put two and two together and were able to assist uh, the Gardaí with their inquiries. Uh, and then, obviously, this individual was interviewed and identified as being the person that had uh, escaped from custody. Uh, it's as simple as that, but the reading of the actual um, report and the circumstances surrounding this escape uh, are absolutely bizarre, fairly unprecedented, but nevertheless, uh, I, I think it's something that will be discussed for some time to come in the, in the Irish Health Service. It's not further afield. It's not normal that a, an escaped prisoner would readmit themselves into the same hospital which they've escaped from, but on this occasion, that seems to what has happened. All right, it is bizarre to say uh, the least. Uh, they say that this man is in a wheelchair now and may never walk as a result. Uh, I'm not sure which window he jumped out of, uh, but uh, there's several stories in many of the blocks. Yeah, well, I would imagine that this incident took place in the accident emergency block, and uh, I, that that's uh, I'm not quite sure from what uh, um, floor he jumped, but obviously he, he determined that he would land safely. But whichever way he did land, uh, he sustained some damage, and I do see the uh, the report that he's been charged with unlawful escape. Uh, and of course, there's a question whether indeed he'll be uh, make a full recovery. But at the end of the day, that's a matter for the for the uh, the authorities themselves. The issue for us uh, representing members who walk in these areas where prisoners do come into into hospital, uh, as you will be aware, Michael, mm-hmm. on this show we've discussed these things many occasions before. Uh, it's the security of the staff, uh, the security of other patients in the area. In this case, the this person did not present a threat immediately to staff or other patients but in times past we had some very very interesting engagements in accident emergency uh, facilities including where uh, assassination attempts were attempted to be carried out or staff were threatened or indeed in one case uh, in one of the Dublin hospitals where staff were taken hostage by an individual who wanted to escape so there is that uh, that scenario that goes on from time to time. But on this one, I have to say, it's a new one on me where someone mm. actually decides I'm going to make a bid for an escape. I injure myself and then I'll come back into the hospital to be treated. Uh, I, I do think that's mm. part of the uh, adventure was somewhat uh, misfortunate for the individual. And from a trade union perspective, do you think it calls for a review of security in the hospital in these circumstances where prisoners are brought for treatment so that staff are protected or is it just one of those things that these things happen? No, as far as I'm concerned, there needs to be a very, very detailed review of the circumstances involved in this escape. Remember, this individual was facilitated uh, to be brought to, to the bathroom by the, the, the people uh, in charge, which was the Gardaíshire Corner and the prison service, uh, they obviously felt that the individual posed no threat of escape. Uh, they were incorrect about that. And the other thing too, Michael, is that the individual also managed to escape uh, the handcuffs which were on, on, his, uh, on him. Uh, that's another question. So as far as we're concerned, representing members in those areas, and remember, a hospital is a very, very big place, a lot of people moving around, staff, patients, visitors, like if this was to happen where an individual was of a serious threat, uh, well, what procedures were in place? 
I don't believe it's satisfactory that an individual can commit an escape like this. Whatever about, you know, faking the illness, that can happen. That's fairly understandable. The authorities have to take precautions uh, to ensure that the, the welfare of the prisoner is taken care of. But the, the review here is this is not the fourth time in an Irish hospital setting or indeed in Northern Ireland or the United Kingdom where this type of escape has been actioned. And as far as I'm concerned, if there's any chance of someone uh, absconding from custody, that should be very clearly understood how that's not repeated. On this occasion, the saving grace was the individual didn't seem to pose a threat to staff, other patients or visitors. But that's not to say that an incident like this couldn't happen with more serious consequences. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Paul Bell, SIPTU Health Division Organiser. Now, as you know, Phil Hogan is uh, the Irish Commissioner to the European Union and uh, the Irish Government has been asked by the incoming President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, to nominate a second person because she wants gender balance and is suggesting that a woman should be nominated as well as Phil Hogan. Uh, The British are not going to nominate a commissioner this time around uh, because of Brexit. Uh, This is the determination of uh, Boris Johnson to leave the European Union come what may on the 31st of October. We will not nominate a UK commissioner for the new commission taking office on the 1st of December. Under no circumstances. Under no circumstances. There were some things uh, that the new Prime Minister announced yesterday that may have come as a surprise to some people and indeed some things that he said that would be welcomed, especially by people from Europe who are living in the United Kingdom at the moment. To the 3.2 million EU nationals now living and working among us, I thank them for their contribution to our society and for their patience. And I can assure them that under this government they will have the absolute certainty of the right to live and remain. As I say, that was uh, welcomed by a lot of people yesterday until they asked, well, where's the legislation? How are you going to do this? And uh, there was scant detail. Now, there was a lot of questions asked of uh, the new Prime Minister yesterday uh, and a lot of commentary uh, about him and the type of person that he is in assuming this role. Let's hear now from Labour's Yvette Cooper. It is a common ground. I beg your pardon, we should be able to hear from Yvette Cooper now. The uh, Prime Minister said in his statement that he had alternative arrangements for the border. I asked the Chancellor, the former Home Secretary, what those arrangements were, what the technology would be, 17 times, and he could not tell me. Can the Prime Minister tell me what the technology is, what the arrangements are, or is this just more bluster and guff? Right, that's the technology that will police that line that goes across this island just up the road from where we are this morning. Uh, Let's see what uh, the Prime Minister said on being asked this question an 18th time. It is uh, common ground actually between the UK and indeed Dublin and uh, the EU Commission that there are abundant facilitations uh, already available. Uh, Trusted trusted trader schemes, trusted trader schemes, electronic pre-registering, all manner of ways of of checking whether goods uh, are contraband or whether for rules of origin. And they can take place away from the border. Electronic pre-registering. Excellent. All right, uh, that's uh, the new British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson.
We'll go to Dundalk now. Uh, well, actually, maybe, maybe just before we go to Dundalk, uh, we'll go back very briefly to Planet Boris. Now, he can indulge in bombast and gesticulation all he likes, but the facts are irrevocable. So can he confirm to me which is his heart's desire? Leaving the European Union or retaining the United Kingdom? Because he's going to have to pick one. Do or die. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, Mr. Speaker, Uh, my my short answer to the uh, right honourable lady is that, of course, the people of the whole United Kingdom voted to leave the EU, and the people of Wales, to the best of my knowledge, the people of Wales, to the best of my knowledge, voted emphatically to leave the EU, and that is what we will do. All right, Uh, he does sound uh, determined if you believed him. That's uh, Boris Johnson responding to Liz Savile-Roberts in uh, the House of Commons yesterday. Now, let's go to Dundalk, uh, because some significant news, or unusual news, it would seem, because two people have been prosecuted at the District Court for illegally parking in disabled Bays. We're joined by John Morgan, uh, an accessibility campaigner from Dundalk. A very good morning to you, John, and uh, thanks for joining us uh, again on the programme. Am I right in saying that this is unusual news? Yes and no. Um, It's probably the the first, but um, in fairness to Chief Superintendent Chris Mangan, um, uh, two years ago we launched a thing called Operation Enable. It's launched nationwide. It's whereby on a certain day in October... Um, we're all given badges and if we see something like a car parked in a, in a I don't like to use the word disabled parking bay, I use accessible mm. bay or you know, um, a blue bay um, so but uh, a designated bay or a blue bay but I, um, Chris Mangan told all his guard under his command that he wanted a zero tolerance in people parking illegally mm. see being trivial Michael um, when the badge is issued the person to whom the badge is issued must be in the car. Now, sadly, the main offenders, I have to say, are family members or friends who might have the badge mm. and feel they can, they can park there. Like, on many occasions, I've seen people, you know, getting out of a car with the badge and they, they could run the, the Dublin City Marathon, you know. So um, I actually had a... And the two biggest, we say, excuses you hear is, oh, sure, I'll only be here for minutes. And... I had a, well, and then I had experience. I, was, I got out of the bus station at the dock one day and I was crossing over to Boyd's car park. And I seen this very, very new car, high, high range, parked in the accessible bay in, inside the car park. And um, it, had a blue, it had no blue badge. So I, was, that was, I went off about my business and paid me credit union or whatever. Came back, had a cup of tea in the shop in the mall there in Boyd's in the cafe. And about an hour, this was about an hour and a half later, and the car was still there. But at that exact moment, a lady came in with a blue badge and had a very elderly label who, lady in the passenger seat who couldn't walk. And she actually had a parked car in the middle of the driveway. Get out of the driver's seat, take the wheelchair out of the booth, go around to the passenger seat, and literally had to leave the older lady over on the footpath. Mm. While the lady then had to go and find an ordinary parking bay. Now, I'll be quite honest with you, Michael, I was so upset about it, and that's the word I'd use, mm. I, I, was, I, was so up, I actually wrote a note out of exactly what I had seen, 
and I had no problem at all. I signed my name and I gave my phone number. Mm. If the person wanted to ring me that night, there was no problem. Did but, they? Uh, no, they didn't ring, mm. you know. So it, it's sad, and as I say, the biggest excuse you'll see is, oh, I'm only here, I'm only here for a minute. But like, yeah. if that proves that's the, it only takes a minute mm. for something like that to happen. And as I say, in actual fact, myself and Senator Councillor Mayor had a meeting with Chief Superintendent Chris Mannion about two months ago, and he told us from last October till then there was over 300 um, fines given out. Right. Now, the, uh, the fine is €150, Euro and they're given a certain amount of time to pay it. Mm. Now, if it's not paid, they can, they're then taken to court, or if someone feels that they want to appeal it, they can go to court. So I know, well, I don't know the two people, but the two mm. cases this week... George Osborne uh, of Adamstown, Dunlear, and uh, Susan Gaffey of Fatima Drive, uh, Dundalk, hadn't uh, paid uh, their fines, and that's why they were yeah. in front of the courts, yeah. Yeah, and I say, when you go to court, the judge has the discretion to charge anything up to a €1,000. As I say, you see, the, the badge, when you see, when someone is given the badge, there's a photograph on it, but for... Um, for privacy laws and all that, the photograph is on the inside. That, you know, so all you'll see in the exit is the wheelchair symbol and if it's the date it's issued. You know, I do know in Dublin of another case, a guard uh, stopped someone and when he really looked at the, he felt that the, the badge was really out of date because it was very faded. When he stopped the person, it transpired that it was a photocopy and the person even went to the stage of getting it laminated mm. that it would look the part. And when they looked into it further, the, the, the original badge was owned by someone who was deceased. And those two badges photocopied and put with laminate mm. on them. So, but as I say, the person to whom the badges must be in the car, you know. Now, mm. I personally, uh, as you know, I use a wheelchair and I have one of these pouch bags that people use on their own holidays. Yeah. And I keep the badge in there all the time. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't give it to anyone. I, only if someone is taking me somewhere, like a friend of mine took me for a spin yesterday. And right, I put it in his dashboard. Yeah. And then, because we went for a cup of tea out in Carlingford, and then I would, when Barry left me, but it was Barry Kane from the Red Cross out in Carlingford, when he left me back home like that, I'd take the badge. And the same with my own family, like I wouldn't let any of them use it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this, uh, this applies only to uh, public parking, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. It, it only applies to public parking. Um, when you go into shopping centres and all of that, you see a lot of. Uh, Disabled bays or accessible bays allocated, uh, but there is no sanction there. They're, they're policed by the uh, shops themselves, are they? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fairness, um, there's a couple of the big supermarkets here in Dundalk, and they do, you know, put a clamp on them, and it's a kind of a sixty euro fine to get the clamp taken off. Mm. You know, but other supermarkets that have, we say, private car parks, technically they don't. And as someone said to me, like if if somebody said to the manager. Uh, I was talking to someone recently and like that though from Carrick Cross and they couldn't get in so they, when they went into the manager they said it to them and the manager said oh they're a good customer you know so it's a kind of a catch 22 now I, I do think that there seems to be you know there would need to be some kind of overhaul with the scheme maybe to stop um, people using the badge you know mm-hmm. that maybe shouldn't be because when the badge is facing it as I say there is a kind of a barcode so Maybe if there's some some kind of technology where the traffic warden, mm-hmm. and if you look at the legislation, actually, both the Gardaí and the traffic wardens have the right to physically ask you can to see the badge, and if the photo, if you mm-hmm. had my badge and you, you know saying you're Michael yeah. Reed, but the badge is mine, well, 
they then have the right way to fine you. Uh, or um, yeah, maybe that should become an offence in itself, separate to the fine that you would get for parking illegally. Uh, John, we yeah. have to leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, as always. John Morgan, accessibility campaigner from Dundalk, brings our programme to its conclusion today, indeed, for this week, with thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Maggie McGuire in the control tower. I'm Michael, hope you have a lovely weekend, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.